Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about the aftermath of trauma, how to recover, rewire, and thrive in our relationships with the self and others. My first guest is Dr. Tian Dayton. This conversation was originally recorded in June of 2016. Let's join that discussion. My next guest is Dr. Tian Dayton. She is the Director of Program Development for Breath Life Healing Center. She is a prolific author, I might add. She's written more than 15 books. Her most recent is The ACOA Trauma Syndrome, The Impact of Childhood Pain on Adult Relationships. Dr. Dayton has earned a master's degree in educational psychology and a PhD in clinical psychology. She is a board-certified trainer in psychodrama, Sociometry and Group Psychotherapy. In addition, Dr. Dayton is Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Psychodrama, Sociometry, and Group Psychotherapy. She sits on professional standards committees and blogs for Counselor Magazine, Recovery View, and the Huffington Post. Welcome, Tian. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure. Let's talk about the origins of ACOA trauma syndrome, but first define what that means. The ACOA trauma syndrome is really a post-traumatic stress reaction in which pain that began in childhood, that set in in childhood, goes underground and emerges again in adult relationships. In other words, in the same way that a car backfiring might trigger fear of gun, gunfire for a soldier, adult relationships act as a trigger for what occurred in early childhood intimate relationships. And what we, when we try to, what we, mm-hmm. I just want to clarify what we mean by ACOA is adult children of alcoholics. Exactly. They were children of alcoholics when they were little and they carry the pain into adulthood at which time they are referred to as adult children of alcoholics. And when you talk about the, the symptoms manifesting in adult relationships, um, simple triggers could be people arguing, things like that. Telling our listeners a bit about some of the common triggers. Some of the common triggers, well, one is intimacy. I mean, just the very fact of being close and all the feelings of dependency and vulnerability that accompany it can be triggering for somebody who's learned that adults, uh, that, that, attachment figures can't be depended on, that they're erratic in their behavior. A child who grows up with adult uh, addicts learns that they can't really allow themselves to be themselves, to be dependent, to be needy in a, in a reasonable, regulated way. So they get scared of being close. They get scared of needing. They get super independent. They learn that depending on people is a bad idea and leads to pain. So then later when they become uh, partners and parents, those fears of dependency and closeness, they learn that closeness hurts. So they they uh, get close and intimate, but they keep a distance at the same time, if that makes sense. It does make sense. So what I'm hearing is that uh, 
sufferers or people who are challenged by ACOA trauma syndrome that when they are connected in any way, the um, the relationship itself becomes a challenge. They want it, but yet they don't want it. There's a push-pull that my mm-hmm. guess and in my experience also leads to isolation, separation, disconnection from the very thing that one desires. Yeah, they, they alternate between the, what I call the trauma dance of uh, it's, it's zero to ten, ten to zero, so that they would feel really, really close and that that feeling of real closeness might trigger a desire to distance. And then the distance would get lonely, so they get really, really close. And it, it goes back and forth like that. It's, it tends to be cycling back and forth between extreme states. And what is happening in the body when this is going on, the neurobiology? Well, good, good, good question. Actually, if you want to start in the very beginning, children are born only partially hardwired for for uh, emotional uh, well-being. We continue the hardwiring through parenting. It's almost called the fourth trimester. Children will not be able to be have be born. Their heads would be too large if they fully developed the complex neurological wiring that they need to be human beings as opposed to animals. So much of that relational wiring goes on in that intimate parent-child state early on, and any parent knows this intuitively. You teach your child how to be close, right? Well, I love what you just said about the fourth trimester. Yeah, it it makes it easy to understand because it's it's marsupial mothering. It's really that that baby state when they are not, they are entirely dependent on their parent for a sense of well-being, obviously, and also to teach them through the parent behavior, how to regulate their own emotions. Children come with an ability to be fully responsive, a fully responsive fear response. Their amygdala is fully formed. So they get when they get scared, they are just out there in a frightened state and need to be, you know, cooed and held and cuddled back into a state of equilibrium. And as that happens repeatedly over time in the arms of a loving and caring parent, they learn, they develop the neurological wiring to regulate themselves. Now, the child who grows up in a ignored or not cooed back into safety or with parents who themselves are the frightening people. In other words, a, a child of an alcoholic parent not only is being scared by their parent, but they're losing access to their source of regulation, the person they would go to for comfort and to learn that they don't have to be so scared. So it's a double whammy for a child. And a child is also vulnerable because they are making sense of the world with the developmental equipment they have at any given age. So the two-year-old who thinks that the universe, you know, circulates around and for them will decide that their parent is angry because of them. Their parent is drinking because of them. Their parent is acting acting erratic because of them. And they, at some deep level, see it is their job to fix them. And of course, and of course they can't. So they grow up with a sense of failure and a sense that they're, they're not so good at um, taking care of another person. So that all of these lessons in relating get carried into adult, not only partnering, but parenting. You know, ACOAs tend to over-parent or under-parent. We, we, uh, we're very uh, overprotective, and when that gets too overwhelming, we can pull back. So it, we need regulation is at the core of all recovery from the ACOA trauma syndrome or any trauma, really. It's a loss of emotional regulation, which leads to psychological dysregulation and a regaining of such through recovery. But the good news is it's, it's very uh, treatable, very treatable. But if you don't treat it, it, it doesn't get better on its own, I don't think. I haven't, I haven't experienced that. I really would like to say it gets better on its own. But I don't think it does. I think what happens is it gets passed on to the next generation. So we, um, the good news is that, that recovery is entirely possible. And 
in fact, fun, enlivening, and it's not like you have to be in recovery for seven years and then you are recovered. From the day you start trying to turn the syndrome around, you you start feeling better, but you need to stay on it. You need to stay, do it for a long time, and you need not to pretend that you have not been traumatized by the experience of growing up in chaos. Now, some of the buffering factors uh, are if if you had... Like alternative places to go for safety that could balance your parents. That's very helpful. Grandparents, faith institutions, neighbors, relatives who are willing to stand in the breach uh, and, and make life more manageable for you. However, my experience with ACOAs tells me that denial and repression are a big, big part of the syndrome. And ACOAs become because we learn to depend on ourselves, it can often tend to want to ignore the effects of of the pain we grew up with and what and deny them and that's when they pass down. Because they pass down in unregulated, dysregulated behaviors in parenting and they are denied so that we're not aware of what we don't know. That's the most serious part of the ACOI trauma syndrome that I see, that people pass things on that they're not aware of. We are going to go to a break. And when we come back, I'd like to really delve into the idea, well, not the idea, the the actual fact of secondhand trauma and how it affects um, legacies and generations, because this is what I see most often in my own work is that you have somebody who comes in for treatment. And then when they start telling, you know, the story of their lives and the generations that preceded them, there is a repetition of this pattern. And, and I, I call it the emotional terrorism. Yeah. There, the uh, the reenactment dynamic is one of the things the psychoanalysts include into very early, and that's essentially recreating and reenacting unresolved unconscious pain. It's it's leaking. It's what Oprah Winfrey referred to as bleeding into the next generation, wounds of one yeah. generation bleeding into the next. If it's unconscious, it will probably bleed. The trick is to make it conscious, which means you've got to sit with your own pain. You can't project it onto your child. That's that's a very common pattern of how things get passed down. ACOA couples, one's an ACOA or both an ACOA, run into tough spots in their own relationship. And rather than sit with their own individual pain and their pain as a couple, they develop what's called a target child, a symptom-bearing child. We're going to dance off to a break, and when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Dr. Tian Dayton. To learn more about her work and her books, please visit www.tiondayton.com, and on Facebook, that page is Tian Dayton PhD, and on Twitter, the handle is at Tian underscore Dayton. Before we head out to the break, I want to talk with you about one of our newest partners and my new favorite self-care discovery, Myro. Myro is a new kind of deodorant that delivers gladness to your power nose and hashtag shelfie obsession with aromatic scents and an attractive refillable case that's counter worthy. Myro is 100% plant power deodorant made with a blend of 100% natural scents and essential oils designed to release over time, keeping you fresh throughout the day. I love that Myro is a vegan product that is also toxin free and cruelty free. Myro is made with a soothing aloe and cornstarch-based formula that is hardworking and long-lasting. No aluminum, talc, parabens, mineral oil, or triclosan. This baby is a workhorse that even tamed my caveman's aroma while delivering sweet-smelling underarm dryness all day long. I'm a happy convert, and so is my family. Here's how it works. Right now, you can grab a starter kit for 5 bucks, which is 50% off regular price. Pick a case color and choose from five delicious scents. You'll get one refillable case and one pod, which will last about 30 days to try it for yourself and see why I'm obsessed. After 30 days, you'll receive a three Dio pod refill every three months delivered straight to your door. Mix and match scents. 
Press pause or cancel at any time. Get 50% off your first order and get started today. Visit mymyro.com slash happiness and use the promo code happiness. Once again, that's mymyro.com slash happiness. And don't forget the promo code is happiness. Now here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. We're going to head out to the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this episode because Sharing is caring. It's kind, free, legal. And we're talking about the aftermath of trauma, how to recover, rewire, and thrive in our relationships with ourselves and others. Let's return to the conversation with Dr. Tian Dayton that was originally recorded in June of 2016. Tian, before the break, we were talking about a bleeding or a sense of the trauma being perpetuated in relationships um, in, 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 in legacy and decades to come. Talk a little bit more about that dynamic and what can be done to break the cycle. It's really unconscious pain that gets passed down. It's pain that you, you're denying in yourself. So that means you transfer it or project it onto somebody else. It's, for example, if you had a, a painful parent, a parent you were, uh, feeling hurt by, and that pain reemerges in a fight with your spouse because the spouse is suddenly acting like rejecting the way your parent did or getting angry or rageful the way your parent did. What gets triggered in you is not only the pain that you're experiencing in the moment, but the add-on of the old pain that you are unaware that you carried from childhood. So... The upshot is that you will overreact to your spouse. So you'll get into a fight that is intractable, that can't end because it's not only about what's happening in the present and it cannot be sorted out only by deciding to work through what's going on between the couple. You need to revisit the extra load of pain that's being imported from the past and work with that separately so that you can then be fully present for the conflict that's happening. All, all relationships have conflict, but the ones that are loaded up with pain from the past are, mm. are, have too many pressures to resolve them. Or you what you said to a kid. You, in other what, words, you think, you think your partner is the one causing you pain. And you look yeah. at your partner and think the solution is, I can either fix this person, get rid of this person, or, or something like that, when you really need to fix what you're carrying and then bring it up into the present day. Well, isn't the root of all discord in our relationships uh, our relationship to the issue? I mean, this isn't this isn't this where the work really begins, where the where the repair and the recovery and the healing happens when we're able to really look at our own conduct, our own thoughts, feelings, actions, and perceptions, and begin to dance with them in a little bit more constructive way. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think if you have two people who are willing to own their own pain, their own everything, really, who are willing to take responsibility for their own happiness, that's when the harvesting that you talk about can start. Otherwise, uh, you're, you're making each other responsible for each other's happiness. And really, yeah. for a successful relationship, you need two people who are taking responsibility for their own happiness and willing to clean up what's in the way of it, both individually and and open up together so that you see not only the adult standing before you, but the child within them, not only the wounded child, but the happy child, the vulnerable child, the needy child. You're, all of those parts of us are present when we're intimate. And if various parts of those parts of us are wounded and silent, they will get in the way of the intimacy today. Yeah. And and, and I think that is the challenge for many of us in our relationships is the fear of the vulnerability because we carry the wounds and the baggage. And I love what you said about the pain being imported from the past that, 
it's scary to go to the place yeah. that you are speaking of. It's much easier to make it about the person who triggered it. Yeah. Because you you have the you have the illusion that you can then do something about it. But the solution is actually the simplest thing to to accept that there is nothing you can do about it. That that porch is burnt. It's you know, just sit with the pain and survive it. And the reason we think we can't survive it is because when we were children attached to parents, we really we couldn't survive without them. We were too little to survive in the world without them. So the pain that they caused felt too much to accept. If we had let ourselves know the pain we were in, we might have uh, thought we couldn't survive. But that's not true as adults. As adults, we are in charge of our own lives. And it really just becomes a question of accepting and sitting through the pain and acknowledging it and coming to terms with it. It is not difficult. It's not rocket science. It just hurts. But on the other side of the hurt, these are these are beautiful blessed tears that lead to happiness. They're not they're they're not just bitter angry tears. They're cleansing tears. And ten minutes of tears can save ten months of pain. I mean, it's it's really uh, are you willing to sit with yourself? And two people are willing to sit with themselves in their own pain. That's when the harvesting happiness can can start. The happiness that's in the present because. Anybody who's listening to this radio show is already leading a good life, I think. Well, we we would hope. <laughs> well, but we, the, see, we're we have choice in our country. We have we have a lot of freedoms not enjoyed elsewhere. Oh, indeed, you know? we do, and and I and I love to remind people of that on a daily basis. You know, we we do yeah. have. So much freedom and so much choice. And even when we are uh, living in countries or places or circumstances where choices are reduced, we uh-huh. still have the choice and dominion over our minds. Yes. I mean, Viktor Frankl talks about that in Man's Search for Meaning. Yes. For learning it in a concentrate on concentration camp is the one thing no one can take away from you. Exactly. And, and, you know, going back to this vulnerable place where you have two people who are willing to visit the skeletons in the closet or the messy yeah. linen cupboard, you know, whatever one yeah. wants to call what goes on up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you have two people in a, in a relationship that are willing to do that and, and share and release tears or, or really, um, let go, you have this magic. I mean, I've witnessed it in, with clients. I've witnessed it in myself and in my own relationship. This magic happens that is irreplaceable joy. Irreplaceable joy. Because you've not only, uh, well, you've, you've learned to use each other and the love you feel as a stimulus for growth. So you've learned to use the triggering that occurs in the heat of intimacy, not as a reason to distance, but as a reason to reflect and to tell you where your pain lies. You've used the trigger as a red flag marking the spot of unconscious pain. And we all need to get to that pain somehow. And we're not going to get to it watching movies necessarily. We, we might get to some of it. But the way that you're going to get to the deepest stuff is by being in a committed, intimate relationship or being a parent. Nothing triggers old pain like new, deep, intimate relationships. So they can become either vehicles for feeling worse or vehicles for growing both emotionally, psychologically, and eventually, of course, spiritually. How do we help people uh, muster courage and become brave enough? They don't have to be completely brave, just brave enough, you know, maybe a couple percent more to be willing to go to that place, you know, that place where we're able to release the tears, that we're able to face the fear and realize we won't die. We will not be injured. In fact, by leaning into it is the actual medicine that makes us whole again. I mean, I know in my own life, being an ACOA myself and the wife of an ACOA, I, I really did it for my kids. I I was so used to uh, having a 
uh, compromised sense of self, that doing it for myself did not fully make sense to me. But I could do it for my children because I, I really saw clearly the importance of cleaning out my past so I didn't pass it on to them. And that's what motivated me until I had built or rebuilt a strong enough sense of self to do it for myself, to do it for my husband, to do it for my marriage, to do it for my life, to do it for God, to, you know, just there are endless Mm. reasons why you should heal once you start. But I think initially go for whatever touches your heart. And I think as parents, we're very touched by our children. We we may have a right to be silent ourselves and do what we want with our own life, but we have no right to visit pain that we don't have the courage to face on our children. Then it becomes wrongdoing on our part. Ooh, I like that. Right? I like that. Yeah. So there's a sort of a social social responsibility aspect to this that if yeah, we, we're not willing we, to deal yeah. with it, we don't have any right to perpetuate it. I don't think so. We don't have any say over what happened to us. That happened to us. But we have all the say in the world about what we pass along. And that is not our fault, but it is our responsibility. So I think we have to square that off with ourselves and take your responsibility seriously and to heart and walk into an Al-Anon meeting or an ACOA meeting or don't expect, I mean, by all means, read the book I wrote, but use it as a, use it as a springboard to get help. You know, it's not going to be done by a book. No, agreed. We are out of time. But before we go, I want to once again give the title of your newest book, which is The ACOA Trauma Syndrome, The Impact of Childhood Pain on Adult Relationships. My guest has been Dr. Tion Dayton. To learn more, please visit TionDayton.com. On Facebook, that page is Tion Dayton, PhD. And on Twitter, the handle is at Tion underscore Dayton. Thank you, Tion, for being with us. And I hope you'll come back and share more. I would love to come back anytime. What a lovely work you are doing. Thank you. Well, we are going to make that a date. Here comes that pause. We'll be right back. And that is a guarantee. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness. And follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about the aftermath of trauma, how to recover, rewire, and thrive in our relationships with ourselves and others. My next guest is Dr. Michelle Stevens, and this conversation was originally recorded in May of 2017. Let's join the discussion. And my first guest is Dr. Michelle Stevens. She is the author of Scared Selfless, My Journey from Abuse Add Madness to Surviving and Thriving. Dr. Michelle Stevens is a psychologist and the founder and director of Post Traumatic Success, a nonprofit organization dedicated to educating and inspiring those affected by psychological trauma. Good morning, Dr. Stevens. Thanks for joining us. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Oh, this is, this is a pleasure. Let's talk a little bit about your story and how it differs from those that make the headlines, those that we see on TV and why the contrast is so significant. Sure. Um, so, you know, I was abused and what you're referring to is in some ways my story is similar to a story of, say, uh, the Cleveland girls who were kidnapped or uh, Elizabeth Smart or J.C. Dugard. Um, but my story is actually, those are very rare that people are abducted. My story in some ways is much more common. I was abused uh, by a man who was my mother's boyfriend, and we moved in with him, and he started abusing me, and then he trafficked me into a child sex ring. Um, and while the abuse that I suffered was probably more severe than most people, being abused is incredibly common, and being abused by someone that you know, by a family member or an acquaintance, is incredibly common. Yeah. 
And, and let's talk about some of the other common misconceptions about sexual abuse and, and, and the familiarity factor. I think that's very important for us to be aware of. Yes, and that is really one of the things that I want people to understand. You know, the good people of society, we all agree that child sexual abuse is a terrible thing. And we all, so many people say to me, well, what do I do to help? What do I do to stop it? And we have to stop the misconception that this happens because, that monsters are doing this. It's not monsters. Only 10% of child molestation happens from people that you don't know. 90% is people that you know. So it is not monsters who molest children. It is teachers. It is coaches. It is priests. It is fathers. It is uncles. It is your teenage son. Those are the people who molest children. And that's why it's hard to stop because when we see these things and it's happening with people that we know and like, it's very hard to accept that, it, that that's true. Well, when we talk about the, um, the perpetrators of, of these crimes, I think we're also talking about perpetrators who are, are wounded. I mean, and, and that's another conversation. But like you say, they're not the monsters. They're the people that we know and love. Yes. And look, there's a lot of research um, on why people molest children or abuse children. Sometimes it's because they're wounded. Sometimes it's because they're sociopaths. Um, there are different reasons. So I don't want to I don't want to characterize them all as wounded individuals. I think that there are people in this world who are simply sociopaths and um, and a lot of hardcore pedophiles fall into that group. So that, which makes them also really skilled con men. Yes. Uh, they're very practiced at manipulating other people and that's why they're hard to catch because they almost always live double lives where they portray themselves to be great guys who absolutely love children. Think of Jerry Sandusky. He's a perfect example. That's the one that just popped into my mind. Yeah. And, but when we talk Career about the percentage like that, well, the percentage of sociopaths in the world is quite small. But what, what I hear you saying is that they are more likely to manifest in characters like a pedophile. Yes, and there, it's, it's rather complicated. There are people who are pedophiles who have an absolute sexual orientation towards children. They are going to do a lot of damage. One pedophile, someone like my stepfather or like Jerry Sandusky, they will go out, they will find a job where they're working with kids so they have very easy access, and over the course of a couple decades, they can molest hundreds of children. So you don't have to have a lot of them to do a lot of damage. Um, then there's a whole different group of child molesters, and those are people who are not necessarily pedophiles, but they molest a child because the opportunity presents itself and it just seems easy to do. Um, mm-hmm. That's a different situation. Let's talk about the psychological symptoms of someone who has suffered sexual abuse and why victims usually don't come forward. I mean, there are some obvious reasons, but I think it's it's more complex than just the obvious. Right. Um, and in terms of the symptoms, very important to point out here, the symptoms of all types of trauma are, are the same. So whether you suffered child sexual abuse or some other type of child abuse, whether you were in a domestic violence situation or whether you were a combat veteran, you are going to come out of those situations with similar symptoms. And those symptoms include things like depression, anxiety, PTSD. Some people have dissociative symptoms, um, you know, things like eating disorders usually come out of child abuse. Um, suicidality, things like that. So it's very uh, predictable symptoms come out of all types of trauma. And in the case of child abuse, this is an amazing statistic. If you were abused as a child in any way, there is an 80% chance that you will develop at least one psychiatric condition. Mm, 80%. So when we talk about mental illness in this country... So, and, and if you're a therapist, you know this. The minute you start doing therapy, practically every person that sits on your couch will come in with some sort of history of child abuse. Um, and it's not that everyone is abused, but it's that it does a ton of damage to the people who are. 
Oh, it's terrible damage. And I want to uh, just touch upon disassociative identity disorder because people might not know what this is because it, it formerly had another name. And I'd love for you to describe a little bit about it and, and the controversy of it. Sure, sure. So dissociative identity disorder, which is something that I suffer from, is a uh, is a disorder that comes out of severe and repeated child abuse. And what we commonly refer to it as is multiple personalities. So, you know, this is a, a great example. People hear about multiple personalities or multiple personality disorder, and all they think about are the wacky symptoms. What people don't realize is those wacky symptoms are the result of child abuse, repeated and severe child abuse. Um, over time creates a situation where the only way that the child can cope is by splitting off their consciousness. It's very similar to highway hypnosis where part of your body stays present and is doing whatever it needs to do, but your mind drifts off. If this happens over and over and over again, then your brain sort of compartmentalizes itself. And that's what multiple personalities are. It's the brain splitting itself off into different parts in order to deal with the abuse. And what's interesting about it, and I, I practice psychology coaching, and, but I am seeing this more and more in my practice. Uh, it's very interesting. And is there an increase of it or is it, has it always been there and no one's talked about it? Yeah, I think the thing with multiple personalities is, it, you know, there are a couple of myths about it. One myth is that the presentation of it or what we will see will be incredibly traumatic. People, you know, it'll be like split or psycho where people are wearing wacky costumes and talking in different voices. Tara, the United in, States in of Tara, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Or Sybil, any of these. This is not true in practice. Um, and certainly not at the beginning of you knowing about it. Um, it's a very subtle thing at first uh, when people present it to you. And so, so between the fact that people don't know that it's subtle and also, people believe that it's rare. It's not rare. If you do questionnaires, testing for it in the general population, 1% to 3% of the general population is suffering from DID, um, which is more about the same or more than schizophrenia, which we don't think is rare at all. The issue with DID is people don't necessarily know they have it. Part of the disorder is not recognizing that you have the disorder. Mm. Mm. And what is it like to live with it? Explain your experience in the when you've disassociated. Yeah, it, you know, in the beginning, I, I am pretty much healed now. But in the beginning, it's a very difficult disorder to live with, mostly because of the memory loss. The the biggest, um, the most important thing about about multiple personalities is not the different personalities. It is the fact, because we all have that, right? We're different at work than we are with our kids, than we are out with our friends. We all have this thing of having different sort of personalities. In the disorder, those personalities all have different memory systems that are cordoned off mm -hmm. in the brain. So when I am one person, back in the day, not now, back then, when I was one personality, I had a complete, completely different memories than when I was a different personality. And so I would have amnesia when I switched personalities for whatever I was doing. So that was incredibly difficult. And, you know, you find ways to deal with it. And people initially do not realize they have the amnesia. It's called amnesia for the amnesia. So you don't know. But talking to people, they would tell me that I was incredibly forgetful, that you get the reputation for being scatterbrained or forgetful. Um, but it's scary. It's very scary to sometimes not know what you were doing, to, to suddenly switch personalities and you're somewhere and you don't know how you got there. It's terrifying. We're going to need to go to a break. Um, but before we do, I want to just mention one thing about seeking safety, because I think that um, part of what happens in this disassociative this identity disorder is is that we're seeking to make ourselves safe when we've been compromised and, and, and those yeah. memories are triggered and then we go, go off and sort of compartmentalize, as you say. But let's talk more about it after we come back from the break. I'm talking with Dr. Michelle Stevens. She is the author of the book, Scared Selfless, My Journey from Abuse and Madness to Surviving and Thriving. You can learn more at scaredselfless.com. You can find Michelle Stevens at Dr. M. Stevens and on Facebook, Michelle Stevens, Ph.D., 
And here comes that break. We'll be right back. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Welcome back to the show. We're talking about the aftermath of trauma. Let's return to the conversation with Dr. Michelle Stevens, originally recorded in May of 2017. We're talking about recovering, rewiring, and thriving in our relationships with ourselves and others. Dr. Stevens, before the break, we were talking a little bit about DID and um, the mechanism for self self protection and self care that is triggered by it. I'd like you to just talk a little bit about a little bit more about that, and then let's talk about your own memories and how they came flooding back um, to you. Sure. Yes, and and dissociative identity disorder is absolutely a protective mechanism. I get very upset when people say that it's controversial or when it gets portrayed as. Um, as something, I think that people are very unkind when it comes to multiple personality disorder because they forget it's caused by really severe childhood abuse. And small children are being repeatedly abused, often tortured. It comes out of very severe abuse. And in order to deal with that, they have to find ways to sort of turn their minds off. Um, you know, and so that is how the brain develops. It's almost brain damage that um, is caused by the trauma. And then as you grow up, you're absolutely right. As these memories get triggered, we we often, I, I often would switch, right, in order to not face these horrible memories and the feelings that came with them. And so that's what DID is. It is an affliction of abuse. Yeah. And in your own case, you had unconsciously repressed these memories for many years. And what happened that opened, yeah. and, that opened and, and it, it up Every to person you. with DID does that. That's part of DID is repressing the memories. Um, that's what, it, what it's all about. Um, yes. Yeah, so growing up because of the repressed memories, had you asked me when I was 12 years old and in a child sex ring if I was being abused, I would have said no. I'm not. That's how good my brain was at protecting myself from that. When I was about 22 years old, I finally was able to get away from my abusers. I moved 3,000 miles away. I changed my identity. And once I felt safe that they couldn't get to me, I started to actually remember the abuse that I had suffered. Mm. So in a sense, it's uh, once there's a safe harbor, that's when this comes to the forefront. Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, you know, and the times in my life where memories came back are, are it's uh, sort of uh, very common. I, when I got away from the abuser, memories started coming back. That's very common. When my abuser died was another time that memories came flooding back to me because I finally felt safe to be able to remember things. And obviously you chose to become a psychologist, and I say obviously and I shouldn't suppose, but because you were A, healing yourself, but B, wanted to make a difference and help others who had gone through the same thing. Absolutely. It started because in trying to heal myself, good helpers, and 
so part of my journey of trying to heal myself was to understand all of this. I started reading everything I could find about psychological trauma and child abuse and finding out what these things do to a person. And so even before I ever started graduate school, I had already become an expert in psychological trauma. And once yeah. I was healed, I really wanted to use that expertise in my own experience to help other people. So I went to back to school and got a PhD. And in addition to the PhD, you've done something which I think is, um, which is really wonderful. And that is to create a nonprofit to serve on another level. So it's not just working with clients on a one-on-one basis, but serving the greater good through education. And with your nonprofit post-traumatic success, you've chosen to to help educate, to help support others and the loved ones of those who have been abused. Talk a little bit about what you do at the nonprofit. Yes. Yeah. You know, I spent about 10 years working um, in private practice and trying to help people. And then I sort of naturally decided that I wanted to help people on a grander scale. And I have a mission. The mission is to educate survivors of any kind of trauma about psychological trauma, as well as their loved ones, because, you know, it's really helpful if the people who love someone who's been through trauma can understand the symptoms and what it does to a person. So I wanted to educate the public. I wanted to help survivors. And I very much wanted to inspire survivors and let them know it is absolutely possible to overcome this and to heal. And so that is the work of my book. And that is the work of my charity, Post Traumatic Success. I, I love the name, by the way, Post Traumatic Success, <laughs> because you. it's just kind of you could miss it if you're not paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about trauma from a different perspective. And this is one that I use as a strategy in my own work. And that is that post-traumatic stress is the body and the brain's normal response to abnormal amounts of stress. Correct. That it's a normalizing it. Yeah. The, the diagnostic manual, when they first wrote the diagnosis for post-traumatic um, stress disorder, which was in 1980, they said that it was due to um, unusual causes. Um, and they had to take that out because we know now trauma and abuse is actually all too usual. It, uh, yes. it, it happens to nearly everyone. But the stress it creates on the body is unusual. And so the body has mechanisms to deal with fear. I mean, that's really what we're talking about here. When we talk about trauma, we are talking about fear. When we are afraid for our lives, a predictable response occurs in our body. We have the fight or flight response. It fills our body with stress hormones so that we can either fight or flee. Yeah. When you can do neither then this is when a problem occurs. We become paralyzed often, and we have to find ways for our mind to try to escape if we can't physically escape. And that's really what we're talking about when we talk about trauma. And for those of you who are listening that are saying, well, you know, I've never really had trauma. Let's talk about some very common traumas that are often overlooked. Divorce. Mm-hmm. You know, a medical, a medical crisis. I mean, these are uh, t- uh, much lesser trauma than being abused, but nonetheless, the brain does not recognize once it's been triggered, it doesn't know the difference. Right. Yes. And particularly in childhood, and th- this is something that people don't understand always. You know, physical abuse and sexual abuse, obviously, most people now understand that that is damaging. Growing up in a house where there is a lot of either fighting or violence, um, being the child of a messy divorce, being a child in a household where there's alcoholism or drug addiction, feeling abandoned as a child. You know, we often have situations where one parent just sort of takes off and you never hear from them again. These are all yep. very, very traumatic um, during a critical period of development in a human being's life. And so you, people do develop traumatic symptoms from that. Let's um, t- turn the conversation a little, little bit to where you are now. You've written this incredibly courageous and wonderful and helpful book. You've got the nonprofit that is helping others and the loved ones of those who have suffered from post-traumatic stress heal and, and, and move into successful lives. What about your own life? You have a family. 
you're, you, you've created something beautiful. I really, you know, I am so incredibly blessed now. And had you asked me at, you know, 22, when I was first having all of these memories of abuse, if I would be where I am now, uh, I, I could barely conceive it. But I did have that as the plan. That was my goal, to get to the point where I was fully healed and happy. I made a decision very early on that I was not going to let my abusers ruin the rest of my life, that I was not going to choose to be self-destructive and do more damage to myself than they had done. I was going to try to be self-constructive. And with that intention, over time, it really bore out. I, I lead a tremendously wonderful life today, filled with love and fun. And, you know, I, I'm even now grateful for the abuse that happened because it helped me find my purpose in life. I feel so moved and honored to be able to help others. And so having been abused was in a strange way a blessing because it forced me to learn about these issues and to develop empathy and to get well. And now I use that to help others. Well, you know, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, when you when we look at the adversity in our lives with a smile and with gratitude, I think that is the hallmark of post-traumatic growth. Yes. And and there is a lot of research to support that. You know, I hate it when, look, it is important to have studies that tell the truth, which is that trauma is damaging. But I don't like it when people get stuck there. It is damaging, dot, 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 but it yes. also <laughs> can be incredibly empowering. And yes. so that is my message. It is a message of hope. You know, a lot of people, it's hard. I'm not saying it's not hard, but it's not impossible. And there is such value in caring about yourself enough to say, I am going to work hard to heal from this. Dr. Michelle Stevens, thank you for spending time with me talking about the resiliency of the human spirit, the resiliency of your spirit, your book, Scared Selfless, My Journey from Abuse and Madness to Surviving and Thriving. To learn more, please visit scaredselfless.com. You can find Dr. Stevens at Dr. M. Stevens and on Facebook, Michelle Stevens, Ph.D., Thank you, Dr. Stevens, for being my guest today. Here come those tunes. We will be right back. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests today, Dr. Tian Dayton and Dr. Michelle Stevens, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.